Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, we'd be glad to have you call in. We'll talk to you about those. If you see things differently than the host and want to disagree about something, we welcome those calls as well. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. And as, as is so often the case, our lines are full right now. But uh, again, I say this every day when they are full because it's true. Uh, if you call in a few minutes' time, you may find that lines have opened up throughout the hour. Lines are opening up as we use them or as people simply get tired of waiting, a line will open up. And, uh, and you can, you can occupy their position on the switchboard and we can hopefully get to you. Again, the number is 844-484-5737. And I've been mentioning this week that, uh, this Saturday we have a, a debate schedule. It's going to be streamed to YouTube. We have, uh, the YouTube link to it now linked at both of our, uh, at our website and our Facebook page. Now, if you're not familiar with our Facebook page, uh, I believe you have to look up Steve Gregg, The Narrow Path, uh, in order to find our particular web page. If you just look up Steve Gregg, I have a personal web page, but if you put down Steve Gregg, The Narrow Path, that's, uh, you'll, you'll certainly find that link there. Or, of course, you can find it where you would normally find our announcements at our website, thenarrowpath.com, under the tab that says Announcements. That's this Saturday night at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. And we'll be debated, debating the question, is Christianity true? Uh, many of you uh, know, because you listen, that Max is our uh, a repeated caller. Uh, he's, in fact, he's, on this, he's on, in line to be on the program today, too. And, um, and he's an atheist. So that's, that's the thing we'll be talking about, is Christianity true? And uh, we have a formal debate set up for that. Uh, let's talk, first of all, to who, those who have been online longest, and that's going to be Barbara from Hawaii. Barbara, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I definitely Mm -hmm. enjoy listening to your show. Um, My question concerns the um, Mark chapter 16, those verses 9 through 20, where it annotates that those um, manuscripts were not in the earliest, or those sections were not in the earliest manuscripts. Correct. I'm just curious as to the history behind that and, and how it was determined that they could be added? Is it because that they're corroborated by the other books in the Gospels? Well, no, it has. It does have to do with manuscript evidence. You have to realize we have about 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And, um, and um, I think most of them have some kind of ending to Mark or other. The one that's, uh, the one that's in most Bibles that goes all the way to, ch- to verse 20 is in, I think, the majority of the manuscripts. But the majority of the manuscripts are not as old as a few of the manuscripts that don't have it. So this is the question. Do we go with the reading that a few manuscripts leave out because those few manuscripts are older and therefore assumed to be uh, you know, more accurate? Uh, or do we, do we go with, uh, with the ones that are more numerous on the assumption that some manuscripts can be flawed, including the oldest ones, and the fact that there's so many hundreds, if not thousands, of manuscripts that contain those verses suggests, to some at least, that those verses were part of the original, even though they're not found in every one of the manuscripts, including two or three of the oldest ones. Now, the truth is, 
there's not just those two choices. The oldest manuscripts, Mark ends at chapter 16, verse 8, but uh, different manuscripts have different endings. Again, I think the majority of the manuscripts have all the verses up to, uh, to verse 20, and there are some manuscripts that have uh, shorter or medium-length uh, additions chapter after verse 8, which means, of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, what should we say, textual testimony that there were verses after verse 8, although many scholars don't think so. Many think that the various endings of Mark that are in different manuscripts are probably added because verse 8 doesn't seem very conclusive. It's strange to end um, the whole book with a statement in verse 8, which says that the women went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, this is right after the angel told them to go tell the disciples that Jesus was risen and he'd meet them in Galilee. So it seems a strange place to end the story. And uh, and most scholars, I think, believe that it's probably not the way it really did end uh, originally. But which ending, yeah, which ending is is uh, is the authentic original ending is much uh, can be debated. But the vast majority of modern scholars believe that the, the book, uh, that everything after verse 8 in any of the manuscripts was not original, but was added on. Now, uh, there are arguments against this because the Greek manuscripts we have are not necessarily the oldest uh, you know, reading. There were Greek uh, copies before our oldest manuscripts came into existence. In other words, our oldest manuscripts are not the originals. Uh, they are probably at least the a couple generations removed from the originals, maybe three or four generations removed for all we know. And therefore, in that period of time, it's possible that the earlier manuscripts did have these verses, but that, you know, somewhere along the way, manuscripts that lacked them were produced for whatever reason. Maybe they ran out of space on the page or something, and they got copied that way. Uh, so it's not really known for sure. But there are old Latin uh, manuscripts and this is before the main Latin ones that were used, uh, produced by Jerome, but uh, which was the Vulgate. Before that, there's what they call the Old Latin manuscripts, which are translations from the Greek. Uh, and there's also the Syriac manuscripts. And these date from probably a, at least as early as our earliest Greek manuscripts. And from what I'm told, and I don't read Latin or Syriac, but what I've read, those Latin and Syriac manuscripts actually contain these verses all the way to, chapter, to verse 20, which if that's true, then they, they stand alongside our oldest Greek manuscripts as the most ancient testimonies. And therefore, they may confirm that even the older Greek manuscripts from which the Syriac and the, and the uh, Latin were translated did have those verses. It's also the case that uh, there are some of the church fathers who wrote prior to the production of the oldest manuscripts we have. That is to say, they had older Greek manuscripts than we have, and, and, and that they did allude to these verses, at least. It, it is thought that Irenaeus, who wrote about 170 A.D., alluded at least twice to material in these verses that are at the end of Mark, as if the copy of Mark that he had, which was in Greek, contained them. And yet that would be earlier, that he would have had an earlier copy of Mark than we have, because... Uh, the copies we have date from the early 4th century, probably. And Irenaeus was the late 2nd century. So if Irenaeus quoted from Greek manuscripts that did have these, then it would strongly argue that the Greek manuscripts he had 
uh, being obviously older than ours, uh, represent the original text, perhaps. Anyway, this is an open question, and there's going to be people on both sides of it. It's not something that can be proven beyond a, uh, a doubt, unless we find older Greek manuscripts, of course. If we find an older copy of Mark that goes back to, let's say, like the year 100 A.D. or something like that, and I don't know if anyone expects to ever find such, but they did, after all, find the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 1940s, which no one ever right. thought they'd find. No one ever thought they'd find Old Testament uh, manuscripts that old because they dated from the time of Christ. Um, yeah, I, I suppose it's not impossible. There are some, uh, and I don't. I have no idea about the status of this particular um, datum. But I have read somewhere, and this counts for nothing because I can't even tell you where I read it. I'm just <laughs> telling you. I read somewhere that, right. that there might be some evidence in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they had uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, which would be very surprising because the Dead Sea Scrolls were not Christian scrolls. They were Jewish scrolls, and therefore you'd think they wouldn't have any interest in the Gospel of Mark. But I did read that somewhere, and it surprised me, uh, but I have no idea whether that's authoritative. So all we can say about... Uh, Mark 16, verses uh, 9 through 20, is that their authenticity is still open to question. And that's usually the way Bibles treat it. They'll, they'll usually include those verses, but they'll also usually put a footnote or a marginal note that says, you know, the oldest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. That makes complete sense. Thank you so very much. I always appreciate your thorough answers. Um, you, I'm learning a lot, so thank you. Okay, Barbara, good talking to you. Thanks for calling. Yes, take care. Mm-hmm. Bye now. Uh, Paul from Colorado, welcome to The Narrow Path. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, I just had two uh, questions that I wanted you to maybe give me a better understanding on them. But remember in John 7 where his bro- it says his brothers did not even believe in him? Uh-huh. And then in Acts, uh, I think it, it's Acts... Uh, Chapter 1? It says when they were in the upper room and they were praying, it says yep. his brothers were up there too. So is it right. talking about the same people? I mean, it looks like his brothers, after his resurrection, maybe they did come to their senses and believe in him. Yeah, that's that's generally the way we understand things because um, we know that two of his brothers, James and Jude, actually wrote books of the New Testament eventually. But um, And they were, as you say, in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. They're met- that's mentioned in Acts chapter 1. So, yeah, we'd have to say they became believers. Uh, in John chapter 7, which was at least a year before the crucifixion of Christ, uh, or about a year, um, about a year, not quite a year, I guess, before the crucifixion, that's when John tells us the brothers at that point did not believe in him. But after Jesus rose from the dead... According to First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said that Jesus appeared to James, the Lord's brother, after his resurrection. So that would probably explain why the brothers changed their mind and came to be believers after having previously not believed. Yeah, okay, I'll have to look that reference up about James in Corinthians. Uh, yeah, it's First Corinthians 15, and I can give you the verse number just a second. I'm turning to it right now. Um, it mentions James seeing him after his resurrection um, uh, in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Okay, and then my other question was on uh, 
you know, the the the, the uh, transfiguration of Jesus. Uh huh. And then and then the accounts of Paul's uh, encounter seeing Jesus. I noticed, and uh, you know, he told them when they came back down from the mountain not to tell anybody about it at, until after he rose again. Right. But I noticed in uh, Matthew 17, it refers to it as being a vision. And then right. also in Acts 26, verse 19, where Paul's recounting about his encounter with Jesus, he he refers to that also as being a vision. And I'm wondering, does a vision mean something that didn't really happen or what's what what do you, what's your take on that i don't understand it right the the word vision in the bible in the new testament greek simply refers to something that has been seen something that was sort of like we speak of vision that way you know that we could say a blind person you know doesn't have their vision or they, a person who went blind has lost their vision we might say uh this would be uh this would be, in my opinion, similar to the use of the word vision in some of these places, that seeing, the ability to see something is, and, and what is actually seen by them, is a vision. At least that's the way the term is used in the scripture. So that would be my, my position on that. Now, I'm willing to believe, certainly, that in the case of the vision that the apostles had of uh, Moses and Elijah, I'm willing to believe that was merely, uh, you know, a, a vision, sort of like the dreams or visions that Daniel had, which means, uh, you know, something that God allowed them to see, which has, um, you know, it has some correspondence to a truth, but it's not really seeing the thing itself. Like Daniel saw, or yeah, Daniel saw a vision or a dream, I guess, of, uh, you know, four beasts coming out of the sea, and they represented four empires. Of course. There never really were four animals that came out of the sea, which is technically what he saw in his vision. But at the same time, there were, uh, you know, obviously uh, realities that it's it's referring to. Yeah, right. I care. Well, All right. that's interesting because I always thought of that uh, that incident that happened on the mountain that that was something that actually really happened that Moses. And Elijah did actually come down there and appear with him. It sounds like you're well, saying it might have just been a vision. Well, I'm saying it could be either way. I'm saying that we can't be certain because the word vision could go either way. We could, you know, a vision is like a dream that prophets have. It, that is when when we're talking about that kind of a vision. But the same word in the Greek can simply refer to something that is seen, even if it's, you know, if it's something that's right in front of your eyes, a real thing. So it's it's ambiguous enough, but uh, I you know I have no problem with either either interpretation. Okay, yeah, that's where I was getting confused because sometimes in the Bible, you know, God yep. did give people vision, but it wasn't something that really happened. So, Artie, thanks for your comments on that. Thanks. Okay, well, thank you for your call. Good talking to you. Our next caller is Max from Portland, Oregon. Max, the atheist, as he likes to be called. Hi, Max. Hi, Steve. Uh, very much looking forward to our debate on Saturday. That's 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And uh, thank you very much for being so prompt and putting the link uh, on the, the narrowpath.com website. I, I'm not on the Facebook, but I assume it's, it's up there as well. So thank you so much for 
so quickly posting that link so people can join in. I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, I yes, actually so. do have a, uh, a question. I didn't want to take up any time in the debate with this question, but I think it's definitely ancillary uh, to the nature of the debate itself. Um, okay. Some Christians object to debating with atheists. A lot of presuppositionalists especially, they say that, you know, it's, it's just sort of, uh, uh, you know, waste of time. And so my question is, is, number one, have you ever actually facilitated a conversion of an atheist? Have you ever convinced an atheist uh, to convert to Christianity, number one? And number two, do you think it's moral? Do you think it's, it's allowable to converse with atheists uh, against the objections of some Christians? Okay, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not uh, a presuppositionalist, as many Christians are who, who are uh, Defending the faith, I'm, I'm an evidentialist. I believe that we should go with the evidence. Uh, have I ever convinced an atheist to become a Christian? Uh, not in a formal debate, <clears throat> but uh, yes, I, some atheists have come to Christ through listening to this program, and uh, they've contacted me. Uh, so, uh, it, but of course, I don't, I don't spend much time debating atheists on this program. That's not what this program's about. But, but from listening to the program, there have been a number of atheists that have contacted me. Uh, who who had changed their mind? So uh, yes, I've, I've, I have, but I guess I haven't converted them uh, at the time I was you know I wasn't specifically trying to convert an atheist at the time. Um, do I think it's wrong to, to for a Christian to talk to atheists? No, no. I, I personally think Christians should talk to everybody. Uh, unless, well, <clears throat> I'll put it this way: Jesus said, "Don't cast your pearls before swine, or give what is holy to dogs." So he is saying there are people that you shouldn't talk to, but uh, it's not uh, it's not assumed that an atheist is in those categories. Uh, you know there are people who are, and some of them may not be atheists at all. Uh, but I would take a, what Jesus is alluding to as a swine or a dog. I would take that to be a reference to a person who simply has no interest in the truth, and you know their only interest would be in in mocking, and they're not interested in ever changing their mind, even in agreement with evidence. So that's, uh, I, I take that, that you're not that person, and uh, I don't think all atheists are. Um, and I think that some people who are not atheists are in that position. Some of them might even be Christians of a sort. Uh, there are Christians who do not care much about truth. They just care about promoting their particular viewpoint. So, uh, so it's not a question of whether Christians should talk to an atheist. There are a certain there's a, semper, a certain mindset of a person that I think is wrong to waste time with, and that's a person who's simply not interested in what the facts are. They know what they want to believe, and that's you know, don't you know, sort of like I know my opinion. Don't bother me with facts. Uh, that's the kind of person I wouldn't see any value in, and, and it might even be a waste. Of, uh, might even be a sinful waste of time to spend too much time with them. But no, uh, atheists. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul he debated with uh, pagans who didn't believe in the kind of God he believed in, um, you know, in Athens and other places. I think that's a very worthy activity for a Christian to be involved in. Well, uh, it's very charitable of you to say that I'm not in the category of, you know, the dogs or the swine. I appreciate that. Um, certainly I hope that we maintain civility, you know, just enough to keep it polite, but also maybe, you know, stray a bit and uh, make it entertaining during the course of the day. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to know of the atheists, former atheists, who contact you saying that, you know, 
something you said on the show helped convert them. Do you see any themes? Do you see any overarching uh, arguments or narratives that sort of emerge in their conversions from atheism to Christianity uh, by way of your show? No, I don't. Um, in fact, I don't even recall <clears throat> that they ever told me what it was they heard on my show. Uh, these are people usually who listen to the show regularly, or at least listened to it over a period of time. And simply over that period of time, they they became somewhat disarmed and more convinced that Christians had a, a reasonable position, which they did not, as atheists possess. You know, I, to my mind, an atheist doesn't have a reasonable position. That's what we'll be discussing, you and I. But uh, you know, an atheist, if, if they're saying there is no God, uh, they're arguing for a universal negative, which is, to my mind, not very reasonable, especially when there is evidence of a God, even if they don't find it persuasive. I mean, if there's, if there's a majority of intelligent people and educated people have believed in God throughout history, and there's really pretty good evidence for it, which intelligent and educated people have always seen as very impressive evidence, and, you know, someone comes along and says, well, yeah, well, I, you, may, you may think there's evidence. I, I'm just not persuaded. So there is no God. You know, I, I think the best uh, an atheist can do and remain somewhat reasonable is to say, I don't know if there's a God or not, which would make him an agnostic, not an atheist, I think. Well, I, I fairly take it to your point that it, it would be very difficult indeed to prove a universal negative. So I wouldn't advocate that uh, approach in anybody trying to debate in favor of atheism. But I don't want to spill all my beans here. Uh, thank you so much for giving me that little uh, recon prior to our debate. Once again, oh, sure. uh, for your listeners, it's Saturday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Link is up on the website, narrowpath.com, Modern Day Debate YouTube channel. And uh, Steve, I'm, maybe I'll call in Friday again just to you know, pre-promote. Uh, sure. I will talk to you and see you. Ben. Yeah. Thank you so hey, much. Max, somebody, somebody told I'm, I wasn't familiar with Modern Day Debate Channel, but someone told me there's like millions of subscribers to that channel. Is that right? That's very generous of you. Again, I think it's 144,000 roundabouts, the elect, if you will. Oh, okay. Yeah, someone told me otherwise. Okay. Well, that's interesting. All right. Well, let's. Millions uh, of we'll, views. It'll have millions of views. So oh, maybe that's pretty, it. Maybe that's pretty it. good exposure for the show, for the ministry. Excellent. All right. Well, yeah. great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Very much as well, Steve. Thank you so much, and uh, have a great day. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Okay, uh, Louie in Las Vegas is our next caller. Louie, welcome. Yes. Uh, Steve, mm-hmm. uh, what is your opinion of the uh, the book, uh, The Holy Bible in Its Original Order? And how does it stack up against King, uh, King James Version? Well, I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen uh, the, a book called The Holy Bible in its original order, but I could imagine uh, such a book. I mean, if some, if some editor took the books of the Bible and arranged them in the chronological order in which they were written, that would be somewhat different than the arrangement in the King James or in any modern English Bible, except that one. I mean, there's a, there's a traditional order of books uh, that, that, that most Bibles follow, although it's not important what order they're in. I mean, the, the main thing is their contents, not, their, not when they were written. But um, it's certainly possible 
at least with most books, to know what, in what order they were written. There's some books we don't know exact, exactly the year or or how they chronologically compare with another book that we don't know exactly the year. But, I mean, yeah, some people some people would be interested in something like that. Now, something maybe like that, but different, would be what they call the chronological Bible. And what they've done there, it's not so much that the books are arranged in the order in which they were written, but in the order uh, uh, of which they're relevant. For example, uh, the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles are parallels, sort of like the four Gospels are parallels. So in a chronological Bible, they would mix Kings and Chronicles together because they're telling the story, same story and they're going to use the material from both. Whereas if, if it's a, you know arrangement in the order they're written, well, the Chronicles were written a lot later than the Kings, so they'd, you know, they'd be positioned later in the, in fact, maybe at the very, almost at the very end of the Old Testament. So uh, I, I don't think the way the books are arranged as far as their order is particularly important. On the other hand, I don't say harm in it. So uh, I, I really think it is valuable for Christians who are reading the Bible to have some idea of how the stories uh, in one book, uh, you know, relate chronologically with stories in another book. Uh, I'm not sure that writing a book uh, or putting the books of the Bible in the order they were written would, would provide any information into that. It would just give you some idea of you know, in what order they were written, which doesn't really matter because most of them are timeless in their application. So when they were written wouldn't be an issue. And, and all of them, for example, the New Testament books, would all be written within a single generation, within a 40-year period. Uh, in fact, probably within about a 20-year period of each other. So it wouldn't really make much difference. Hey, I need to take a break here. We have another half hour coming up, so don't go away. You're listening to The Narrow Path. And my name is Steve Gregg. We are listener-supported. Um, and if you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or you can donate from the website, though everything at the website is free. You can download, but you can donate if you wish. It's thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's, we'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't go away. Are you aware of the wide variety of teachings available without charge at the Narrow Path website? In several hundred lectures, Steve Gregg covers every book of the Bible individually and gives separate teachings on approximately 300 important biblical topics. There is no charge for anything at our website. Visit us there and you'll be amazed at all you have been missing. That web address again is www.thenarrowpath.com. Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour, taking your calls. You have questions about the Bible, about the Christian faith, uh, objections to the Bible or the Christian faith, differences of opinion you may have with the host on any particular point. I know there's thousands of you out there who fit into one of those categories, and uh, so I welcome you to join us. Uh, we actually have some lines open. We didn't in the first half hour, but we took, I think, most of those calls, and we've got some lines open now. If you'd like to be on the program, you can call this number, 844-484-5737. That's 
484-5737. All right, we're going to go to uh, the phones now, and we'll talk next to Bill from Fullerton, California. Hi, Bill. Welcome. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Thanks for taking my call. I have, I should form this in the question. Can I recommend two books for our atheist friend Max to read? I think I heard him say one of his questions was, what are some things, items that could possibly lead atheists toward our faith? And so I have a couple of answers, if I may. Okay, let's not take too long. I've got lots of and okay. I've got lots of books I could recommend too. But go ahead. Oh, okay. Um, one of them is, of course, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Yes, of course. Lewis, of course, was a famous atheist. And another one I think I've recommended before. It's called Hold Case Christianity by J. Oh, yeah. Warner Wallace. Yep, those are the two. Right. You know, that's one I don't have, but I've heard about many times. And he was uh, a lawyer, right? Um, Defense attorney or something uh, like he, that? He, he, he or prosecutor. was a homicide detective. Oh, and detective. he takes gotcha. those skills. Yeah, he takes those skills, and that's how he sort of dissected Christianity, because he himself was an atheist. And he mm-hmm. used that same methodology to bring himself to the faith. So I find it extremely interesting. Yes. His name again? I, I mean, I've heard it before. I forget it now. What you uh, say? J. Period Warner, W-A-R-N-E-R. And then the last name is... Wallace with an A at the end, so it's W-A-L-L-A-C-E. Okay, and that's Cold Case Christianity. Great, thank you. Yeah, and there's also, of course, uh, there's multiple books about about Christian, uh, you know, the evidence of Christianity that are written by people who were atheists prior to investigation of the things. Now, C.S. Lewis, you know, he, uh, he was an atheist. And converted, I think he converted in his early 20s or maybe his late teens, but I'm not sure. Uh, but he, he said he's extremely reluctant to convert. He was aware of Christianity uh, all his life, but he chose atheism because, well, he was an intellectual and it just seemed like that was the way to go. But uh, there's others who were atheists who became Christians by trying to disprove Christianity. Um, obviously, uh, the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict, by Josh McDowell. He was an atheist in college and uh, sought to disprove Christianity and got converted. Um, yeah, J. Warner Wallace, as you mentioned, is one of those cases. Peter Stoner, who wrote Who Moved the Stone, was like that. Lee Strobel, uh, who wrote uh, The Case for Christ, and, and a, lot of, a lot of other books. Uh, seems like there were a lot, of, a lot of guys who've written books who were atheists, and they didn't just change their mind and become Christians. They changed their mind as they were researching to disprove Christianity. And I, my, my position is that there is no evidence that disproves Christianity. There is simply evidence for it. Now, an atheist might say the evidence presented for Christianity is something I'm not willing to credit. I'm not willing to uh, I'm, be impressed with it. I'm not willing to accept its uh, final verdict. But no one can deny there's tons of evidence of just the kind you need to confirm Christianity. And there's nothing in the way of evidence to disprove Christianity, if by Christianity we mean Christ. Now, if somebody wants to talk about Jonah and the whale or the worldwide flood or something like that, they, you know, people can stand by and mock and they can say, well, that's silly to believe such things. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus. And uh, therefore, what has to be demonstrated is that Jesus did not 
either exist, or if he did exist, he was not what Christians think he was, didn't do the things that Christians say he did. I mean, that's the kind of thing that an atheist has to do to disprove Christianity. Because once one has dealt with the Jesus question, then everything else hangs on that. I mean, if Jesus is the Son of God, if he did rise from the dead and all that, uh, then what he had to say about the other subjects would pretty much carry a lot of weight to the to the believer. And, uh, you know, an atheist can mock at things that they think are unlikely or impossible, you know, miracles and so forth. But, uh, you know, that doesn't really doesn't really do much because they can't prove that miracles have never occurred. No one can prove that miracles have never occurred. And the vast majority of cultures have records of supernatural things or things they believe were supernatural in their history. So, again, the atheist is pretty much a, a loner out there. Almost every religion, almost every uh, even non-religious people often believe they've seen ghosts and things like that. So, I mean, there's an awful lot of, uh, you know, general sense that there is such a thing as the supernatural and uh, leaving open the possibility for miracles among intelligent people throughout all ages and all cultures, uh, with the exception of the atheists, who uh, apparently believe they're smarter than everyone else. Now, I don't know. I don't I won't say that Max thinks he's smarter than everyone else. I can't tell you what he thinks about himself because I don't know, but I do know people like, uh, you know, Daniel Dennett and uh, Richard Dawkins. They wanted to rename, they wanted to remove the word atheist from their label and call themselves brights, B-R-I-G-H-T. They thought that atheists should start calling themselves brights, although there are a number of uh, atheists who found that cringeworthy. Uh, So I I think it just tells us how unself-aware some atheists are to think that calling themselves brights would somehow impress people. Uh, anyone who would call himself a bright would show he's not very bright at all. And a lot of atheists would distance themselves from that title. But, but the very fact that some of the leading uh, atheist voice want to use that term is their way of saying, we're the smart ones. Everyone else who's ever believed everything different than what we believe, they're stupid. We're smart. And, uh, you know, they might as well call themselves that since they do hold such a unique position. To say there's no God is to go against virtually every society, every culture, every religion, uh, and to say, yeah, we're the only ones who are smart. Uh, and we came up, you know, with Hume or someone else, you know, there just a few centuries ago. Anyway, uh, that's that's true. Uh, anyway, let's talk to, uh, let's see who's been there longest. It's going to be Randall from Tacoma, Washington. Randall, welcome. Thank you, Steve, for taking my call. Uh, can you tell me what the difference is between pagan and a heathen? Well, the terms are used interchangeably in many cases. Uh, in fact, among uh, among many Christians and Jews, uh, anyone would call a Gentile a heathen or a pagan or see these terms used uh, independently only because the Gentiles were heathen and they were pagans. But the terms don't have the same meaning. A Gentile simply means somebody who's not Jewish. Um, a pagan is somebody who holds to a specific nature religion. Uh, often they don't believe in God, but they do believe in earth spirits or Mother Earth or things like that. And they kind of worship natural uh, powers and, and things, supernatural things sometimes. But they are not uh, necessarily identifying these as gods. Now, pagans do. Some, I mean, a, a pagan can refer to somebody who believes in the pagan gods, though the, the broader term heathen would probably be used for, for that. Uh, 
So if I could narrow it down, uh, at least as I understand it, and I, you know, I've kind of used those words and been familiar with those words for a long time, uh, it seems to me that while the word Gentile definitely means uh, a non-Jew, and in biblical times, before New Testament times, Gentiles were all heathen, uh, which means they worshipped something other than the Jewish God. Uh, they worshipped pagan deities or whatever, or earth spirits. Um, a heathen was somebody who's not Jewish, and, uh, and, and then among Christians, a heathen might refer to someone who's not Jewish or Christian. And then a pagan is much more specific. Uh, and that would be somebody, as I say, that the pagan religion is an actual religion. Though sometimes people are not referring to the specifics of the pagan religion when they call themselves pagans. A lot of times they just mean they're heathen. So the terms, the terms definitely have some slush over uh, into each other's territory in their definitions. But they, they don't mean exactly the same thing. But uh, especially Gentile today would not be used as an, uh, to, to identify a heathen or a pagan particularly. But heathen and pagan often would be overlapping domains that people might not distinguish between them. Okay. Thank you, and uh, have a great day. Okay, thanks. Good talking to you. Okay, we're going to talk next to Robert from Pinole, California. Hi, Robert. Welcome. Hi, Steve. Yeah, Hi. I was, I was uh, reading um, Matthew chapter 16. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, this, these people asking for uh, Jesus to tell them about how they could tell when the, you know, the weather, when the sky is red and what's going on there. And then uh, they're asking for a miraculous sign. And then Jesus tells them, uh, wicked in generation, that's for a miraculous sign. But no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. So my question is, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, he actually answers that uh, four chapters earlier in chapter 12 in verse 40. Uh, verse 39 and 40. Uh, he says, uh, he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he explains what it is. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be, <coughs> excuse me, three days and three nights uh, in the heart of the earth. So uh, the sign of Jonah, he says, is that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, Jesus would be three days and three nights uh, buried before his resurrection. That's what he's referring to. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, I just got it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Robert. Okay, we're going to talk to Michael from Inglewood, California. And we do have a couple lines open if you're interested. The number is 844 37. Michael, welcome. Hello. Yes, Steve. I was just reading Luke 6, 8, and I was wondering, does that kind of refer to Jesus having a hunch, or does it refer to a miracle or, you know, like Jesus' special, you know, omniscience, literally like telepathy? Well, this is where he's uh, in the Sabbath, and uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man with a withered hand present. And, and Jesus, of course, was known for healing people. But the Pharisees who were present, uh, they, they believed it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath. They felt like if a man doesn't have a life-threatening sickness and, and you could wait till the next day, you wouldn't defile the Sabbath <clears throat> by doing 
an unnecessary thing like healing a man whose whose condition could be healed any other day. Um, and it says that they were watching him to see if he would heal, knowing that he probably would. And Jesus, it says there, Jesus knowing their thoughts. And you're saying, well, did he know their thoughts as kind of a, a, a you know clairvoyance, or or did he know their thoughts just because he knew what kind of thing they'd be thinking about? Um, we're not told. We're not told. Now there are times when the Bible does speak of Jesus knowing people's thoughts, when it seems. Uh, it would have been impossible for him to know in a natural way. It, it, we're not told that that's how he knew in this case, because uh, obviously he knew these guys. He knew that they would criticize him if he healed on the Sabbath. They could see they were he could see they were staring at him to see if he's what he's going to do next. So I mean, he's Jesus was a smart man too. I mean, he could I, I think any perceptive person might well uh, deduce that these people are thinking this way. So we're not told whether this was a case of his supernatural perception or just natural, you know, intelligence and, and awareness of the situation. Okay. Thanks, Steve. I think it's also amazing how you know by, by just hearing the scripture, you know what it's about. So thanks for everything. All right, Michael. I appreciate your call. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Harold in Maine, welcome to the Narrow Path. Yes, hi, Stephen. Uh Hi. I'm glad I could get through this. this time. I've gotten through before, but I, I had to wait because I usually call from work. But anyway, uh-huh. uh, yeah, this is great. Uh, yes, uh, concerning uh, p- these people that think the earth is flat, pre-Galileo mindset, um, mm-hmm. uh, in Hebrew, the original word is chug, and it's chet, vav, gimel, and it means circle, but there are synonymous words also that fit uh, that uh, verbal criteria, you know, the word. Uh, you're talking about cool. Job, right? You're talking about Job where it says that God sits on the circle of the earth. Is that what you're referring to? Uh, I think that's in uh, uh, Isaiah 40. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, okay. oh, you're right. That is Isaiah 40. Yeah. Job, Job spoke about how God uh, hanged the earth on nothing. Yeah, Isaiah 40, you're right. That is where it says he yeah. sits on the circle uh, of the earth. Okay. Right, right. Uh, but the synonymous words that, that fit the criteria are round, orb, and sphere uh, in the Hebrew also. Mm-hmm. Um, that same word also means those three other words that are, you know, transliterated into English. And so, um, but also some of these, these guys that call in, I've noticed that uh, they're, they're not stupid. They're fairly intelligent. However, they're misled. They're misguided. One one resource that would help them vastly uh, on on the pure, you know, the the hard science would uh-huh. be A. E. Wilder Smith. A. E. Wilder Smith. The natural sciences know nothing of evolution. It breaks it right you down know, to the race mates in the yeah. order organization uh, in the chemistry. So, A. E. Wilder Smith was a very uh, very intelligent, famous man. Uh, he debated evolution yes. a lot in his lifetime and always won. Judging by lost. the audience, he never lost. Right. Yeah, he he possessed right. about eight earned graduate degrees. He was an incredible right. Christian yes. scientist. Yeah, uh, I I don't have that book, and his books are not easy to find anymore, are they? I mean, I I, I haven't seen them uh, around. But. I think they're deliberate, deliberately kept off the shelves the way uh, the Holy Bible is in public school systems these days and university uh-huh. systems. Um, okay, so for those who don't know, yes, yes, for those who don't know him, his name, uh, his initials A. 
E. A E. And, he, and he's got a hyphenated, hyphenated yes. last name, Wilder Smith. Yeah. Yes. A E. Wilder yes. Smith. Go ahead. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, ironically, uh, Harvard University, mm -hmm. uh, the the very first textbook in 1636, established by John Harvard in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, was the Holy Bible. And the core curriculum at that time was Hebrew. It was replaced okay. by Latin later on. And it was it was founded as a theological seminary. Okay, and Harold, yeah, I know. Just, hey, listen, yes. so I think we're beyond your questions, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, we got lines full yes. and only a few minutes left, so I'm yes. going to go ahead okay, and take another call. Thank you, call. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you very much. Great yeah. talking to you. You too. Uh, Neville from also Maine. Uh, two calls from Maine in a row. Hi, Neville. Welcome. Uh, I think you're listening to your radio instead of your phone. Okay, I'm sorry we can't hear that. Neville, you, uh, what you need to do is when you call, stay on your phone and don't listen to the radio uh, while you're on the phone. It'll foul you up because the radio is delayed by several seconds. Okay, uh, Jeff in Dallas, Texas, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, I, was at, I wanted to ask you if the Native Americans didn't have a chance or an opportunity to hear the gospel, how would they be saved? Um, well, you know, there's a lot of people who've never had the chance to hear the gospel. I mean, the Native Americans being only one of thousands, thousands of tribal peoples uh, throughout history who never heard the gospel. So the question is, how's God going to deal with people who've never heard the gospel? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, there were people who didn't had never heard the gospel. Most of the Jews had never heard the gospel, certainly. In fact, I'm not sure any of them had heard it to understand it because it was a mystery, Paul said, that was not revealed uh, to the generations before he preached. But um, I believe that we would have to extrapolate probably from what we know about the Jews of the Old Testament who never heard the gospel to uh, other people who've never heard the gospel, and that is... Uh, they had certain amount of light from God. They didn't have as much as if they'd heard the gospel, but they had some light. They knew there was a God. At least they had every reason to believe there was. The creation itself declares it, and, uh, and most of them knew it. They also knew instinctively, as people all do, that there's a right and a wrong. Uh, and by the way, that's another argument for God, since why would there be a right or a wrong if there's no arbiter deciding what's right or wrong? And... Uh, and why would everybody have an intuitive knowledge of right and wrong if they weren't built to know that by somebody who arbitrates that? So, I mean, I think people, pagan people, have always been able to deduce this. The Native Americans whom you mentioned did believe there was a great spirit out there. Of course, they had him quite wrong, I'm sure. But uh, on the other hand, if their response to God as they knew him, to the light they had, was, uh, was, uh, was to seek and to pursue and to want to please God, then, then they'd be pretty much in the same position as a faithful Jew in the Old Testament. And we have every reason to believe that faithful Jews in the Old Testament were saved uh, by Christ, even though he had not yet come. Jesus died for everybody. And it says in John chapter 1, verse 9, when it's talking about the Word, who later became flesh in, in Christ, uh, it says of the Word in John 1, 9, uh, in him was life, and that light was the light of men. It says, that's the true light that enlightens every man who comes into the world. So every man in the world, every person in the world, receives some light. 
And John says, well, the light that they all received, that's actually the word. That's actually the same light that later was made flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. So that it would seem, if that's if John is telling the truth, and I tend to believe the Gospels uh, and the Bible in general, it sounds like he's saying that whatever response they may have made to the uh, to the light, well, uh, that was that was a response to the one who became Christ later on. So, no doubt, could be understood to be their response to Christ. And if it was a good response, perhaps that would be what God would take into account. Okay, let's talk to uh, Sophia from Hawaii. Hello, Sophie. Welcome to Sophia. Oh, hello. Welcome. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, uh-huh. So my question is, how does God decide what prayers he's going to answer in your favor? And who does he decide, like how does he decide which miracles he's going to perform? Who, how does he determine, okay, you get to live, and I'm going to answer your prayer and kill you, but then others, you know, don't get those, uh, they don't get to be spared like that. I, 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 I'm not quite understanding. You talk about miracles that are sought today or miracles in old times? Today. Because you don't hear as much about so, miracles that he did in the okay. Bible as much. So, you know? so how, does God, how does God decide which miracles to grant and which not to grant? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah and okay. which prayers to answer. How does he determine, okay, I'm going to answer your prayers versus mine? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Well, uh, I believe that God... See, prayer... Our prayers are simply our way of inviting and welcoming God to have his will in, in our lives and in the world. And therefore, we, when we pray, uh, if we really are followers of Christ, that when we pray, we always have uh, spoken or unspoken the subtext, if it is your will. Even Jesus said that when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, he, he said, if it is your will, let this cup pass for me. Well, it wasn't, and therefore it didn't happen. He did have to drink the cup. Uh, so we know that even Jesus had a prayer denied him, uh, be, but he knew that any prayer he offered was to be subject to veto by God if it wasn't his will. So that's how I understand it. That when we pray for a miracle, God's, it's not always God's will to do miracles. In fact, uh, miracles are, by almost definition, exceptional events. That doesn't mean he never does them. But if he does them, it's because it's his will to do it. Now, for example, if you're praying for someone who's sick with cancer and dying, uh, the question has got to be, is this the way God's going to take them? Because God is going to take us all one way or another. And some of us will, sadly, die of cancer. And so if somebody's dying of cancer, we don't know, is this the way God intends to take them? Or is he going to take them some other way at some other time? Well, we, we don't necessarily know that. Or uh, is it God's will to heal them? As a testimony for his own glory. Well, sometimes that's the case. I've known cancer victims who've been healed. And, uh, you know, with, with terminal, inoperable cancers. So God does sometimes and he doesn't sometimes. Now, someone might say, well, the ones he grants are those who have faith. And the ones he doesn't grant are those whose faith is actually deficient. But um, that can't be true. Because I've known, for example, I knew one cancer victim who died of cancer over a prolonged period while she was confessing with all her heart that she knew she was healed and God was going to you know, d- deliver her from it and so forth. In fact, I've known more than one uh, person to die of cancer that way. But on the other hand, I've known, I knew one woman who was completely healed of her cancer, and she wasn't planning on it. In fact, she was telling people that God told her she's going to die, and she's expecting to die, and she's ready to die, she said. But it turned out she got healed instead. So 
you can't really say, you know, he's going to he's going to do the thing that the person has the most faith asks him to do. Uh, everything, even if you've got lots of faith. Well, if you do have a lot of faith, part of that faith is you trust God. In fact, that's the main part of your faith. You trust God to do the right thing and to know better than you what ought to be done. Mary and Martha, for example, had a sick brother, and they asked Jesus, and he was their personal friend. <coughs> they asked him <coughs> excuse me, uh, to come and heal him, and Jesus didn't do it. He said, but uh, this is going to result in the glory of God. Well, they were disappointed with Jesus when their brother died. He didn't grant him a healing. But Jesus had a better idea. He, he raised him from the dead. That's not always what he's going to do, but that's what he was going to do that time. And so it wasn't his will to heal him. It was his will to let him die. Now, it's probably God's will to let all of us die at some point. Uh, it's appointed unto man once to die. But he also intends to glorify himself in our resurrection. If we are his children, we'll be resurrected on the last day. So, I mean, it's kind of like Lazarus' situation. It's only that we'll be dead maybe longer than four days, whereas Lazarus was raised after four days. Uh, but the point is, in principle, God doesn't have any obligation, and we would not wish to hold him to any obligation to heal us if that's not what he thinks is the best thing. God's a lot better judge than we are of what the best thing is. And therefore, when we pray, we should always have either stated or unstated the uh, condition. You know, if it's, if it's your will, if it's, if it's the best thing, uh, then I'm asking you to do this. I appreciate your call and those who've called before. And I apologize to John. Uh, who is waiting and didn't get on today, but this is only Wednesday. Hopefully, call tomorrow, and we can talk to you then. You've been listening to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gray. We are listener-supported. We pay for time on the radio station all over the country. Many radio stations cost uh, scores of thousands of dollars per month, actually. And if you'd like to help us stay on, since we have no sponsors, you may write to us at the Narrow Path. P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow. God bless.